Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past, today, about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Liverpool, Toronto Blizzard, Lucerne, Beveren, Oldham Athletic and Tramia Rovers striker David Fairclough about two Focus On interviews for Shoot magazine from around 1978 and 1980. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYpod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? David Fairclough. Birthplace and date? Liverpool, 5th of January, 1957. And your height? Six foot. And do you still weigh 11 stone? No. Uh, well, I'm glad I don't, but uh, I've put on probably about a stone and a half since. Okay, I could have done with that when I was playing, actually. <laughs> You're doing well there. Um, David, welcome to What Happened to You. How, how are you and how, how are things under the current tricky circumstances? Yeah, obviously, like everybody else, um, it's, it's been a test. And uh, I think there's been some good moments within lockdown um, for you know, a number of reasons to, uh, to be a little bit unhappy about how it's all, um, how it's all panned out. Um, had two grandchildren throughout lockdown, which um, uh, proved traumatic for both the mums, uh, you know, throughout throughout that time, as well as as well as the dads. Um, you know, girls weren't able to have my son and uh, and my son-in-law with them while they, while they're having the the, the the kids. So so it's, it's been a bit traumatic, and I, I've had my you know, I have to say uh, without making a sob story, I've had a first year of illness, I had the virus early on in the in the thing which kind of led to one or two other um follow-ons so um so it, it's been a difficult year i would say yeah well congratulations on the grandchildren and again you. well you know glad to hear that you've uh, you beat covid and hopefully uh, you know we're all on the you're on the path to recovery um yeah well you're uh, you're another member of the multiple player profile gang because we've got two interviews to pick over here both from within a couple of years of each other, when you were strutting your stuff in that great Liverpool team of the late 70s and early 80s, which even for me as an Evertonian, uh, isn't too difficult to acknowledge how good they were. Um, and you're actually the first Liverpool player we've had on the podcast, and this is our 17th episode. Um, and absolutely, honestly, there's no Everton bias involved uh, at all in, in waiting this long to get a Liverpool player involved. Glad to, uh, gl- glad to join in. Um, well, here you are. In, you, you're in the, the profiles here in that famous red kit with the big white V-neck. Um, you're all fresh-faced and youthful. Uh, and of course, you've got your, the, the trademark ginger hair there, which certainly helped you to stand out. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know you've done a million interviews in your time, but um, did you used to look forward to doing these sorts of things back in the day? Especially, you know, thinking back to the late 70s, you weren't that much older than, than the lads who were buying the magazines. No, true. Initially, I think it's it's a thrill when you get the uh, the offer from Shoot at the time 
to to take part because as you say it wouldn't have been that long before you know after i was actually reading these these things i was an avid reader of shoot from from it's a, it's in you know when he initially started so uh, yeah it was kind of a, a mark of having made made a name for yourself and um, the type of thing that you probably dreamt of as a young aspiring footballer to, to be you know to be involved have your picture taken be asked kind of um, novelty information um well according to both of these features your early influences are your mum and dad, which is, you know, I think everybody would say the same answer. Um, were they the type of mum and dad who encouraged you to to really pursue being a footballer, or did you ever get the uh, the pressure from them to get a to get quote unquote a real job instead? Ne- never had that the the um, the conversation of, of having a, a real job. I grew up very close to Anfield. Um, I don't know, three quarters of a mile away from from Anfield, very close. So we were in a very tight community where there wasn't much else to do other than to occupy yourself in the street, which more often than not involved running or playing football, chasing and all those, you know, the, the, the games that you invented kind of thing. But I was obsessed by football from a, from a very early age, surrounded by um, you know, young lads and, and even dads who used to play on the street you know, it's it's every opportunity. Um, played under, played under the street lights, and uh, and dreamt that they were they were floodlights on on you know on Anfield and and Goodison. So um, I don't think there was any ever there was ever any. Um, I was never forced or pushed into into playing football. I was just actively encouraged. My dad was a Liverpool fan, and. Um, I don't think he ever thought that I would play for Liverpool in, in, in honesty, but from my part, I was, I was quite sort of, um, I, I must have been decent at football because I was involved with a lot of the big boys at a, at a very early age. And, and even at seven years of age, at, at seven, I was playing with the under 11s team in, in, in primary school. So it was kind of a, a flowing kind of development for me playing School football, primary, you know, primary level. I played for Liverpool primary boys. Uh, I was under eleven, which was a great experience. Um, played on one or two league grounds in in that um, in that standard of football, and and that 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 probably you know starts to dream off a little bit. Maybe thinking that perhaps you've got more of a chance of being a footballer than than maybe some of the other some of the other kids, whilst everybody dreamt of playing for Liverpool or Everton. Um, I think once you're in the organised, you know, the, the, the representative team environment, you then begin to sort of be picked up more noticed. Well, uh, you grew up in, as a Liverpool fan in, in the 60s and 70s, which is, of course, the, the Bill Shankly era at Anfield, uh, as he was gradually building that empire that would go on to dominate English and European football for 20 years or so. Um, and in the one of the interviews, you've picked out Liverpool's World Cup winning striker Roger Hunt as your favourite player growing up. Now he obviously scored a lot of goals in an era where there were the likes of him, Dennis Law, and Jimmy Greaves. You know they were the the real superstars of the English game. Um, did you model your game on on Roger Hunt? And if you had to compare him with a striker from the modern day, for those who haven't who've never seen him play, who would you who would you compare him to? Ooh. 
Well, Roger was the the, the the kind of golden boy of the Liverpool team in the in the 60s. I think I was just saying to a friend even the other day, um, even the players who, who played alongside Roger Hunt, they you know they they all pointed to Roger as being the star the star man. You speak to Ian St. John or Ian Callaghan, Ron Yates. They all they all admired Roger Roger Hunt, even though they were a, kind of a very you know, a unified squad. Roger stood out a little. You know, there was there was elements of Roger's personality and his style of game that uh, that, that made him a standout man. And obviously, he was the he was the the goal scorer. And I I was on somebody again. Um, I don't think I could have ever made it being a defender playing in football. Um, I always wanted to run with the ball, score, shoot. I mean, I was. Saying earlier on about how I progressed with football, one of the good things that my dad and a, and a cousin who, who lived in the same street as us, from a very early age, I was encouraged to be two-footed. I was naturally left-footed. And there'd be many times down the years, people used to think that I was a naturally right-footed player. But I think that's probably, you know, maybe to my credit slightly, that people were unaware of what foot was my be- which one was my stronger one. So I... I I loved, you know, shooting. And by the time I was nine or ten, I was equally. I was either playing on the right wing or the left wing. It was no, there was no preference. Um, so I didn't really play like Roger Hunt and didn't model my game. I liked to score goals and scored them in different ways to, to Roger. Uh, everybody loves tap tap ins, and Roger had this fair fair share of those. But my style was more maybe a bit like George Best kind of thing. And I have to say even though George was playing for Manchester United, the, the way he, he ran at defenders uh, and dribbled, you know, going you know, right side, left side, that twist and turning style, that, that's really what I, I tended to uh, try and replicate. So you've signed for Liverpool, you've made your way through the ranks, and then um, actually Shankly had retired uh, before you made your first team debut, uh, age 17, on the 1st of November, 1975, away to Middlesbrough, which is, in the first of these interviews, uh, your biggest thrill at the time. Um, do you still remember the game and, and being involved in the, the squad and going up there? And, and how did you feel as such a young lad getting into that team with you know so many stellar names that Liverpool had at the time? Well, I was having, I was having a good... Uh... I was having a good spell in the reserves at the time. And although, you know, as you say, Shanks had left, um, I'd signed under Shanks. It'd been, you know, you kind of remember some key moments of meeting people like like Shanks. And when it went, more often than not, I was in, in a big group, but there were occasions when when Bill Shankly had pulled me over and had said one or two uh, words of inspiration. So Shanks was, it was a massive part of, of signing for Liverpool, Be, you know, he was very much the the father of modern Liverpool. My dad was a, a huge, as I say, uh, fan of Liverpool, but we we were very smitten by by meeting Shanks when we when we went along for me to to sign on. And although I, I missed a point earlier on, although I was never uh, aimed at pushed to, towards a career. I went to a grammar school and my mum and dad were very, particularly my dad was very intent on me, making sure that schooling came first and the football just didn't take over everything that I, that I did. So I was actively encouraged to, to stay on at, um, at school, do all levels at that, well, as they were then. Um, 
and um, it was a bit of a surprise, really, that the, the well that I was asked to sign for Liverpool. My school was against me signing for Liverpool because they they wanted me to go into higher education, and my my dad was a little bit torn. We took advice off off the school at the time, and we we, we kind of decided or they decided on a, a little bit of a halfway house type of thing that rather than stay on and do A levels. Um, providing I, I took O levels, my dad would would let me sign for Liverpool, even though it would have been something of a dream for you know for him to uh, to see me sign for Liverpool. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, so it, it, you know we didn't get great opportunities to have big conversations about that. But I, I know that he would have been enormously proud, even for me to have just been signing for Liverpool. Uh, and it was at the time that maybe people weren't so aware of the dangers of being a professional footballer in as much as the failure rate. And, um, and the day I signed Apprentice with Bill Shankly and Tom Saunders in, you know, in, in the office there, that they said something to me that, that, you know, that perhaps gave my dad a little bit more hope that it wasn't just sort of taking a big chance. There, there wasn't an actual an opportunity for me to, to, to progress. So ultimately, having had that bit of run in the, in the youth teams, and then the and then the reserves. I, I looked. I was involved with the first team squad for the first time, and um, I got word on the on on the Friday afternoon because the game was at Middlesbrough. Well, I'll be travelling with the with the team later in the day to tell my mum and dad that it looked like I was probably going to be playing. They didn't like to announce the team too early, but they gave me enough permission to tell my mum and dad. They said, "Look, it looks likely that your mum and dad, you know, that you're going to be playing." And if your mum and dad want to you know, make arrangements to go to Middlesbrough, there was a little bit of a, a nod towards um, you know, making sure that they would be there. So um, that kind of gave me that 24 hours between Friday lunchtime and, and, and Saturday afternoon, gave me a little bit of time to, to gather my nerves and to take in exactly what, was, you know, what I was involved in and, and perhaps um, what it would be like playing alongside Emily Hughes, Kevin Keegan, Tommy Smith. Um, it was going to be, you know, it was going to be a great occasion. But um, maybe, I don't know what would have been better. Probably the, the fact that I knew 24 hours before did sort of allow me to, to, to get used to the, to, to the idea rather than be, a, you know, be told an hour before the game you play and, and have that little bit of a, a shock sort of um, factor. So I was, you know, I remember it very, very vividly. I remember the whole, the whole lead up to it, the everything about it, um, a lot of the game. Um, it was a rotten day, first of November in, in, in Middlesbrough. Um, team in rain, a muddy pitch, and um, it was just a case of trying to, you know, make a name for myself and, and and do the things or do some of the things that I'm. I was comfortable in in doing, and thankfully it went really well. My mum and dad were there, and 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 you know, we did we did speak about you know how proud they they were. Uh, we we never really discussed my career though in, in in years kind of the immediate years after. My dad kind of just left it to Liverpool to, so he he just quietly sat in in, in the background. He wasn't a he wasn't a, a, a large person personality in that sense, sort of making demands or anything like that. Just made sure that, you know, I did the right things while I was at home, and and he and my mum supported me, and, and you know, always made sure that I was able to get to places where I had to be when I was playing football. Was growing up, uh, and then in those days, when I by the time I well, 
I think I played for Liverpool a year or more before I had a I had a car. I'd, I'd taken driving lessons, so I had to get to Anfield. You know, my mum and dad would take me up to Anfield for for uh, for various sorts of reasons, and um, or I'd, I'd get on the bus. You know, I was still so go back to being a, I was I was playing Liverpool's first team. I was still going to work on the bus. Uh, we'll get to cars later on, but um, I want to talk about um, w- the manager who gave you a chance in the first team at Liverpool was Bob Paisley. Uh, now, just obviously what you see in the, on the TV or, or what you read in books, um, I always got the impression that Bob was quite a quiet, grandfatherly kind of character. Um, and, and certainly when you put him against um, his predecessor, Bill Shankly, they were they seem to have very different natures about them. Um, is that fair, or would you say that uh, Paisley could also have an edge about him when when he felt it was necessary? Oh yeah, very much so. And I think as as we were growing up and coming through the ranks, whereas Shanks was always positive, you know, there was never any negativity coming from Shanks. It was all about great to be alive, how lucky you are. Um, all the great things about being a Liverpool footballer. Um, but Bob Paisley was probably the, you know, the, the, the bad cop of the relationship. He was the assistant manager in the times. And he was, he was a, a feared character, really. I think lots of people would, would, te- would bear testimony to the fact that you know, there was any sort of um, uh, tough uh, stuff to be, to, to be dished out at the time. Bob Paisley was ten- tended to be the, 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 that man. Um, so, you know, they were totally different, totally different characters. They come through an era of, 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 of life, you know, in, in, involved in the war and all those type of things. So they went sort of, uh, they went, you know, mild uh, types of, of people. There was an aggressive sort of attitude in, in their personality, but in, in, in different ways. And Bob could be a little bit, a little bit narky. Um, and and when he eventually took over, he, he he was determined to do it in his own way. He, like, not not wishing to say that um, Matt Busby had a had a an overbearing effect on Manchester United when he left, but he was still there and he was still around. And, and Liverpool never allowed Shanks to have that kind of influence on Bob Paisley. He was able to go off and do it in his own way. So sometimes he came across as that kind of you know, nice uncle type of character. He could equally be the, the tough schoolmaster who uh, who dished out the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the punishments or for want of a better expression. So um, totally different, um, you know, and it's it, it not easy to actually, you know, really condense the, the, the full strengths of their personalities or their, their, their weak, you know, their weaknesses even. But, um, uh, massive, massive characters, and I say, and and he did it their own. They did it their own way. You know, I mean, Liverpool wouldn't have been Liverpool without Bill Shankly. They're obviously all influenced by Shanks, but certainly, uh, Bill for the mo- uh, Bob for the most part did it. You know, the, the way that he felt that was necessary. And football was changing slightly. You know, the you know the the, the players were uh, players were changing. That they've been very much an old school under under Shanks, one that he developed. Albeit, um, Bob Paisley then had to rebuild, and, and he was bringing in younger people. You know, the likes of Phil Neal, um, integrating Ray Kennedy and Jimmy Case and, and myself, McDermott, and, and people like that. 
Uh, well, we, we've talked about your debut for Liverpool, um, but in according to the first shoot profile, your most memorable match was a derby with Everton in 1975-76, where you scored a winner in the 88th minute at Anfield. Again, here you are, not even 20 years old, scoring winners in the Merseyside derby. Uh, and considering you only won the league by a point that year, uh, it was an absolutely vital result on your run into the title. Um, that was the season that really sort of began Liverpool's absolute dominance in the league over the next 15 years or so but so do you remember the game do you remember the goal because you know again scoring what were you 19 or so scoring a Merseyside derby winner it's the stuff of dreams yeah very much so um you know played in many Liverpool Everton games in the street down the years and uh you, you dreamt of being you know a Roger Hunt or a, a you know Alan Ball or something scoring a winner in a derby match um, and then you progress, come through the ranks, and you play in the in in sort of the mini mini derbies, you know, in A and B team levels, youth team, you know, reserve team football, um, and you know you always want to play in a, in, a, in a real derby. And if you're going to play in a derby, then you do want to be that sort of the, the man that sort of um, makes the difference. And and it was it was you know. You know, to coin a phrase, it was a dream to 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 be to be the match winner against to to be against Everton. And at that time, when we were in on the run into the league, then we'd been off the pace really, and I hadn't been involved that much in um, in the season. Although I'd made my debut in in that seventy five seventy six season, up till or until after Christmas, really, I wasn't really involved in in what was happening where the team was standing in the league and, and that kind of thing uh qpr had been pretty much the team who was setting the pace and um we came with a really late run and that kind of coincided with me breaking into the team scoring a few goals I scored my first league goal for Liverpool against norwich away we won one nil and the, the next home game we played burnley i came on a sub scored two we won two nil and then the following week, we played Everton in the in the derby, and I, and I come on a sub, and I scored the um, I scored the only goal in that one. So it was kind of a really golden patch of two weeks where you know I was the only one who was scoring the goals for Liverpool, which was a, which was a nice a nice thing. Um, and you know, obviously having scored a couple of week uh, the week earlier at, at Anfield, got used to the the the, the league. Atmosphere at Anfield, you know, a packed Anfield is is a is a, is an ordeal, and um, and so coming into the derby match, kind of wasn't phased that it was Liverpool and Everton, but you could sense that the atmosphere was was different. It was it was a little bit hotter. I was on the bench, not having um, uh, had any opportunity to warm up really uh, prior to just before going on, um, but. And I think, you know, I was, I was sitting there hoping that maybe it might get a chance to, to experience what a real derby was about. And in those days, they were more frenetic than, than perhaps football is today. You know, very little time on the ball. Things are happening at 100 miles an hour, literally. But when uh, they decided to make a change, they brought John Toshek off with about 15 minutes to go. It was a case of just going on and, and, and sort of seeing if I could you know, maybe even get on the ball, never mind make an impact, but just to, to do something that, that made people sort of take notice of me. The fact that I was able to to ultimately score what turned out to be the winning goal is one of them, the greatest memories. Fantastic. It still gets recalled even today. Um, 
just a couple of days ago it appeared online and and, and people still talk about it which is um, makes me really um, proud amongst other things makes me blush as well um so many years on that people uh, people still talk about it Evertonians hate me for it still and those who were old enough to see me score it still uh, still love seeing it less than three minutes remaining and a draw here is a result that would please the other challengers for the championship but look at this from Fairclough still going Uh, well, in the second shoot interview, uh, the most memorable match is, um, for most people, not even remembered for the fact that Liverpool won, nor that you scored a hat-trick. And that was a, a 5-3 win uh, down at Carra Road in 1980. So tell us about that game, David, and why it's not specifically remembered for the fact that you went and scored your, I think it was your only hat-trick for Liverpool. Yeah, it was my only league hat trick for for Liverpool. Scored, you know, multiples in in, in all kinds of different various games, and uh, but unfortunately, only managed to score three in, in one league game. And and you know, when you when you get these um, opportunities to take part in the in the profiles as they were, we would shoot. Uh, some things change a little bit, um, and I, I suppose it depends on. The, the the mood that you're in that that day when you when you fill it in, but uh, not wishing to be maybe boring and and just repeat the the fact that having scored a a goal in the you know or made my debut, which will always be the highlights of you. I think you know it has to be the highlights of you of your, of your life. You know making making that debut and uh, is is hard to beat. And I'm very fortunate to have played in cups and. Uh, cup finals and things with Liverpool, won league championships, but the debut is still it's probably the, you know, the, the the ultimate. But along the way, you'll you'll, you'll make milestones, and um, and I suppose at the time I considered the fact that I'd made this milestone, scoring a hat trick for the first time, um, as as something that was kind of noteworthy. But um, it was a great game. It was a game that perhaps is remembered for just in fashion scoring. Uh, a quite a memorable volley from the edge of the box. Um, up to that point, I'd scored the first three for Liverpool, so we're leading 3-2. And then Justin goes and bangs away this volley, which was uh, rather fortunate for him from the edge of the box. And that that sort of, that, that could kind of looked like it was going to ruin the day, having scored three for Liverpool and, not, and still not being on the winning team. Um, you know, that made it 3-3. Thankfully, we went on and... and um, Kenny and Jimmy scored late goals, and uh, it, it was remembered at the time as the as the game of the season. Five three down in Norwich. Norwich was a, a, a particularly difficult place to go and uh, and, and win in those days, and um, it, it, it was a great memorable game. Anybody, and it's still you know, obviously a lot of archive stuff is 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 shown from time to time, and it's still a game that is shown pretty regularly. To, to be honest with you, it was on only. Only a few weeks ago, so um, so no. Thankfully, with the, with one thing and another, YouTube's and, and and the like. Thankfully, some of the things that I was involved in are still still replayed. Uh, well, we've only actually talked about success so far, but it wasn't all plain sailing. Uh, and I want to talk about the game that you've called your biggest disappointment in both of these interviews here, and that's uh, the 1977 FA Cup final. Um, Liverpool lost to Manchester United, which denied the club the league and FA 
the league FA Cup and European Cup treble. Um, and I mean, if losing wasn't bad enough and losing that opportunity to be the first club to do that, um, actually the big disappointment that you've, you've highlighted here is the fact that you weren't selected. Yeah, and, and, and the whole, the whole sort of the events leading up to it make it more traumatic. And, and to be honest with you, all those years on, it's something that's never dampened. I felt really disappointed in the way that it was all, that it was all hand, how the, the way that it was handled. And, um, you know, you mentioned before about the differences between Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley. Um, there, were, there, were, there were parts in, 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 Bill, in Bob Paisley's sort of character, which I could never kind of find myself to forgive, really, because in the, in the build-up to the, to the FA Cup final, I was promised different things and, you know, people are aware that I was seen as this substitute character. And, um, and, and I felt that sometimes I could understand Bob Paisley's reasoning and, and, and the way that he did things. Um, but other times it was, it was enormously hard to actually put that to the back of my mind and to crack on and just be the, you know, I mean, football has changed now. The, the, the mentality behind things, decisions, the, 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 the way people think about how players are expected to perform if they're not being involved on a regular basis. So the handling of players is much, much better now. And, and in, that, in those days, it, it, was, it was cruel. And, um, and unfortunately, I had my first share of, of sort of being let down. And that was probably the biggest letdown I, I ever sensed. Um, or, or experienced the way Bob Paisley handled the whole situation around um, taking part or missing out on, on playing in the FA Cup final. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the super sub tag that you picked up. Uh, and even now you've probably got difficulty getting away from. Um, how do you feel about it? Because although you were winning medals and you were playing for a, a successful club, obviously your boyhood club, uh, the competition for places in your position during your time at Anfield was was incredible. Uh, there was Tosh and Keegan, David Johnson, and then and then probably just when you thought you'd seen them off, uh, along come Dalglish and Rush. Yeah, I was very lucky to play in in a, in a rich period of, of Liverpool's history, and um, and people have said down the years, well, even to just be in in, in the twelve or the fourteen Liverpool squad, that that should be uh, seen as uh, as an achievement but like all footballers you want to play and um and whilst being substituted in, in initially was was okay be getting my little bit part in and as you say uh, Keegan Toshak was very much a um, that, that that was a kind of that was the obvious choice for 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 Bob Paisley uh, and Stevie on the wing uh, chances were always going to be a little bit hard to 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 come by so I was grateful of the substitute appearances early on. But once you start making a little bit of an impact and then you get in there, you don't, you know, you all of a sudden then you don't feel inferior to to, to John Choshak or Stevie Highway or Kevin Keegan. You believe that you've got an opportunity, you know, you've shown that you can do something and, and you're you're equal of that opportunity and more and more. So in the initially, you know, when the super sub tag sort of was was kind of put on my on my back I kind of thought oh that's nice you know that's nice I'm getting a little bit of notoriety getting a few headlines in the papers um that that's all well and good 
but after a time it becomes it becomes then a bit wearing to to, to say the least and uh, and then you, you you know because as I say the nature of football has changed now so being the 12th wasn't really a consolation you know as they say some players are happy to be in in the 20 or the 25 to then even be 12th man was I was beginning to feel that it was a little bit of a slight on me and and sometimes maybe uh, uh, and I, I think I once sort of used the the analogy you mean being a substitute is like being on the spare wheel in, in in your car you know what I mean you only think about it when you need it you know you're not really involved you're on the edge you think of you know the 11 men who are going out to play there the game is about them the 12th man is the 12th man and, you, and for until you're thrown onto the pitch you're, you're you know you're, you're not even a thought um, and that that was then when the, the substitute thing began to so to get on my nerves a little bit and people using it. And if I didn't, if I played the odd game in, in, in a little bit of a run and then I would come on and maybe may play, you know, I don't know, play a game and people would level the, the criticism. Oh, it doesn't make an impact as much being on for 90 minutes as he was for, for 15 minutes. Um, that, that was totally unfair. It, it, it's, it, would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't probably be the, the same type of criticism now because um, people understand that you, you, you can't just turn form on like a tap and whereas I was being maybe I might play for three weeks and then all of a sudden I get a shout and then people then expecting wonders from me so it was all kind of becoming a bit of a burden and I wanted to get away from that substitute substitute thing even though I was still being sort of called super sub you know it was all super sub this super sub that uh, and so for for then for a number of years it was it was it was, um, it was a pain um, it's only after it's all over and um, you're looking perhaps maybe for a little bit of, uh, I don't know, not, not so much looking for recognition, but you, you, you think to yourself, well, okay, it, it give me a little bit of a, a, a part in, in, in the whole greater history of, of Liverpool. So, you, so I remember it with, 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 with fondness, but it didn't come without its difficulties. Well, we're going to come back to the football shortly. Uh, but now we're going to get to some of the miscellaneous stuff that's hidden in these old profiles. And as I said before, we're going to talk a little bit about cars. Um, and in 1978, you had a Ford Capri, uh, which I think every single footballer of the 70s and 80s have had a Capri at some point. Uh, and in the 1980 interview, you had a Toyota Celica XT. Um, I had to look that up. Um, and at the risk, it sounded like Jeremy Clarkson. If it was the hatchback version, the Capri and the Celica were both very similar looking sporty cars. Yeah, well, my my, um, my my first car was uh, a little Escort, which I was very proud of. And, uh, still remember the number plate today. Um, but um, when I got my, uh, my my Ford Capri, which was a John Player Special, which was you know that that was kind of that was kind of making it. That was the that was the rewards of that very successful '77 season. Um, got a good bonus that year. Um, and I went and spoke myself and, and, and got this black shiny Capri with gold uh, coachwork thing. I mean, it looked the yeah, absolute bees. It was more like a sport, you know, it was a sports car than a, than a Capri, just a Capri. Uh, so it was, an, it was, it was a fantastic, um, it was, it was a fantastic time. Obviously 20 years of age now, you know, I'm beginning to live the life a little bit. This is what being a footballer is 
all about. So uh, yeah, I did. I did like cars, and and that was a little bit of a. Uh, Graham Souness actually talked me into a Celica. He got he got one, and Graham was a Graham was my next door neighbour. So we 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 both had Celicas, which weren't the most sort of um, obvious sort of choice of, of of cars for footballers maybe at the time. But the Celica at the time was, and Toyota were it was kind of a. I don't know, it was a move up in, in terms of um, uh, comfort and, and finish. And it wasn't as, like a sporty, it, became, it was becoming a little bit more executive-y type of car. But that was, that was kind of short-lived because it wasn't, it wasn't long before I was then back into, into sports cars with the BMW 323i, which was um, for, for any car enthusiast. The, uh, the 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 90, early 80s BMW 323i was uh, was something of a um, that, 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 that was a, an interesting car to uh, to drive around. Well, let's move on to your music taste now, uh, which screams the late 1970s here. So you've owned up to being a fan of mm. ABBA, Tavares, Supertramp, Olivia Newton-John, and the Detroit Spinners. Uh, so so I've got this image in my head now of you. Uh, walking into the nightclubs of Liverpool with the platform boots, the flares, the, medalli- the medallion, boogie in the nights away no, to the no, disco sounds. No medallion. <laughs> I don't had, listen to the medallion, I'll be honest. <laughs> Who had the worst music taste in the Liverpool dressing room? Uh, God, I think, I think a, a few of the boys were, you know, likes of Callie and Smithy who were 15, 16 years older than me. I mean... They they were like still into Johnny Mathis and um, and Tony Bennett and all that type of stuff. Whereas um, I was part of the new uh, the, the the modern the the you know what what was coming on the. Uh, I mean Kevin maybe uh, he had he had a questionable uh, music taste given that the song that he brought out himself you know. Um, but um, I I was I was friends. My my big mates were largely the lads who had been in the reserves with who was coming through, and we were very much into the Detroit sound, you know. Detroit Spinners is still probably, yeah, I don't know, probably my ultimate number one favourite still. I, I just got everything about Detroit Spinners and um, uh, Marvin Gaye more, you know, Marvin Gaye's and all that type of, all that type of stuff. Tavares I went to see live on a few occasions. Uh, Stylistics, Shy Lights. So all the, that Detroit type of, D- Detroit type of wo- uh, world was, was uh, w- was good, but I have to admit, I was I was uh, I did enjoy ABBA. Probably drawn to the fact that you know they had two gorgeous sort of female singers at the time, and that was a big um, that that was maybe the the, uh, the big attraction to ABBA. But I'm still a bigger ABBA fan. I'll be well, not a fan of those of us, but still appreciate ABBA music. And um, it, it's probably I'm not embarrassed to say it's probably I think alongside. Um, uh, Pretty Woman, Mamma Mia, is, like, is the most watched film. Is my most watched film. I think. I think. Uh, um, I always in, still enjoy watching the uh, the ABBA movies. Uh, well, you mentioned about going out uh, with your with your friends there uh, from the reserves, and they asked you here in one of these interviews who your best friend was, and you didn't commit to any specific person. Um, but uh, yeah, who were your best mates in football at the time? My best mates were. Uh, were Colin Irwin and Jeff Ainsworth, who were both playing the reserve team. Colin Irwin ultimately played for the first team, went on and played for, for Swansea, captain of Swansea for a number of years. Um, still close to those two, still close to those two lads now as well. Sammy Lee um, was, he kind of followed on, but 
Jeff and, and Jeff and Colin and me, we we both we all played schoolboy football. I played with I played under 11s with uh, with Colin Irwin at, in Liverpool Primary Boys, um, and then Jeff joined us when we got to about under 14s, and we're, we're still all mates now, which is um, which is which is a nice thing to nice thing to to think of. Um, so you know, they they would have been they they were they were they were really my my mates. Max Thompson, who was some people who maybe remember the Liverpool town, team at the times. Um, Max uh, as well. We we he played under 11s football with me and Colin. So um, they were they were the, they were the mates and they 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 were the lads who we, we used to go out with and, and all that type of thing. And uh, you know, uh, sort of our, we had our girlfriends and we all we all mixed for many many years. Uh, they asked you also, what would you do if you weren't a footballer? Uh, and in one interview, you said uh, a PE teacher. Uh, and in the other, uh, you fancied being a sports journalist. Uh, well, of course, you've gone on to do a lot of punditry stuff since you stopped playing. So mm-hmm. I suppose that's close enough, isn't it? Yeah, they, 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 they were the same. I remember doing it at school and it was either going to be, I was either going to be a teacher or a sports journalist. I always wanted to be a sports journalist from, you know, I can remember the old black and white um, Nights of watching box, you know, boxing and football, and um, that that was that was the thing. But um, I thought probably that you know, that if I'd not if I'd not sort of um, if I'd not left school when I did, I probably would have gone on to you know teaching. Probably um, you know, I would I would have I wouldn't have been too far away from either of those two things. And I did do journalism when I was later playing in my career. Um, at Tramier, I went to college and I studied. I did a degree in in sports journalism and um, and feature writing and stuff. So, um, so it's it, it's it has always remained, you know, a, a big love of, you know, my love and and in and an interest. Right. Let's get back to the football. Uh, and we've already touched on Liverpool's success in the late seventies and early eighties, uh, and you're often remembered most because of those famous European nights, uh, and of course the the big one I, th- I think is probably the Saint Etienne game in, in 1977. Uh, again, is a, a game where you came off the bench um, to win the tie with a goal in front of the cop, uh, and Liverpool of course went on then to win its first European Cup later that season, which was the first of two winners' medals that you picked up. Um, would you say that that was your absolute uh, favourite memory from from those days in your time at Liverpool or, or or is there something else that you would pick out that could even top that? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose people think I should say that St Etienne is the greatest moment, but um, it's the most remembered, perhaps, by, by other people um, because uh, of what it meant to Liverpool's history and uh, the, the importance of the, of the match. It's the most... Recalled moments. I was, I'm doing something next week, and they just sent me over something yesterday to review. And the thing that they they send over as part of the review was the Saint-Étienne goal. So there's barely a day of my life goes by without somebody mentioning Saint-Étienne. And Fairclough is onside. This start could be interesting. Fairclough. I went for a, 
I went for a COVID test the other day and um, last week. The guy at the, the, the park, car park attendant, you know, said, you gave me that, my greatest moments in my life. Uh, it, it, it's meant so much and, it, and it's, it's sort of recalled pretty much, you know, every day, somewhere or other, when I'm out and about, people talk about St. Etienne. So I should probably say it's, it's, it's the greatest moment. But, you know, already I've mentioned my derby, uh, my debut rather, the derby goal. Um, and, you know, that, that's not even counting playing in the UEFA Cup final, playing in the European Cup final. Um, it's always extremely difficult to, to say which one would, would I favour. Um, I suppose if, if I was really, really pinned down and, and said one, I, I'd probably choose the European Cup final, 1978. Now, we're on, on reflection, I think that just summed up everything that I, that, that I wanted to do when I, was a, when I was a kid, play on Wembley, do well. With the exception of scoring, I had a had a good game that night at Wembley. I think if you're playing in those big games, you just want to do yourself justice and and know that perhaps you've had that opportunity and, and you didn't waste it. Um, so so probably ultimately the European Cup final of 1978 would be my best moment. Mm. So you remained at Anfield then till 1983. Uh, so what happened to you after Liverpool, David? Because uh, if you look through your clubs after that. Uh, it was probably an unusual career path, I would say, after that. Yeah, well, it was uh, different. <clears throat> I was I was a little bit hampered by uh, by an injury that I that I picked up in eighty eighty one, and in during that the recovery time, it, it was so serious that you know news wasn't maybe as reported. I was out the I was out the equation. People probably didn't realise what had, what had happened to me, but it had an injury to me to my femur, and um, it, it was situated behind my knee, and that that caused me to be out ultimately for about a year. In that time, uh, Ian Rush uh, appears and begins to to, to break in, and um, and by the time I've got full fitness again, Kenny and and, and Rushy had become a, a little bit of a feature. So it kind of brought about the, the, the you know the opportunity to 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 get away from Liverpool. I'd, I'd been a, in, as part of my recuperation from the injury. I went spent a summer in, in the NASL. Or Paisley said sort of say had said rather than you know just be here through the summer just working away on your own. Do you want to go and play somewhere through summer? Which made the, made good sense actually. It gave me the opportunity to go and see the the states. So. I went over and played in the uh, in the NASL for Toronto. Had a good few months over there, which helped an awful lot to get me back to to, to a good level of fitness. Um, but when I came back, the fact that Rushy and, and, and Kenny were were obviously you know the the, the, the number one partnership, um, and I, I kept thinking, well, I'm going to be battling again. Here. I'm going to be back to the situation that I was a couple of years ago. And I, I did kind of, it kind of made up my mind. I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, stretch the my horizons a little bit, go and um, see what was available. And the fact that I wasn't playing every week, um, I would get one or two inquiries. You know, it, it's wrong to say that it doesn't happen, but you're tapped up from, from time to time. And that had kind of made me a little bit uneasy. And I was beginning to think, you know what, maybe it might be better for me to leave. Bob Paisley was going to leave at the end of the the season I broke back into the team as you know I'd played some made some appearances I'd made some sub appearances um, 
but but still and all uh, you know I, I thought to myself it might it might be better for me all round to um to, to see what was was out there and i had one or two interesting um uh offers um and and you know the fact as i say that bob paisley was re retiring um i felt to myself you know it, it might be a good it might be the best time um so i i, I kind of reluctantly um turned down a, a new contract offer from liverpool and that the nature of the, the way that that was done enabled me to to be able to be able to move away on a free transfer uh opportunity and and then yeah i had a number of had a number of opportunities offers from um, all around europe and um i began to um to, to to consider um maybe strangely i chose uh lucerne in in switzerland came about you know, it's not a short story really, but it wasn't the team that I was initially going to Switzerland to join. But it, it, when we we actually went over there, myself and my girlfriend at the time, who later became my wife, we went over there and we we saw what a great life it was in Lucerne. It was it was a kind of it was a different it was a life choice more than a kind of a, a football career choice. Um, although there was a good story to be told about Lucerne itself, the, the football club, um, maybe we were influenced by the the, the area that we're, we're you know where we were at. Uh, Lucerne's most beautiful part of the world, and and the club had great uh, aspirations, and um, and so it all kind of came about that I um, I thought you know that, that this might be a team to. To, to, to go to so um, one or two other clubs you know keep clubs clubs make you make you wait a little bit I'd, I'd been I'd been um, uh, I'd been approached by uh, by Leverkusen and it was kind of the, the offer was a good offer it was probably comparable to to, to Lucerne but it was a case of there were a couple of days to, to there was there were a couple of days between firming up the 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 offer it, it was there but he so said we're gonna to have to wait till i think it was a monday or a tuesday before we could actually formally uh, sort of put everything in place and that time i had to make a decision lucerne's offer was so good i thought to myself you know i could wait till monday or tuesday next week and the offer might come about and um, by that time I, I i kind of confirmed to myself we wanted to go abroad and I, I, I wanted to leave i wanted to leave um, england away uh, you know behind people like man city i'd spoken to Everton, a um, couple of others had, had, had been on to me. Um, I felt that, you know, I wanted to go to the continent. If you could go back in time to speak to the young Liverpool starlet, David Fairclough, from the days of these interviews, uh, and give yourself just one piece of advice to take on for the rest of your career, what would it be? I should have stayed at Lucerne. Not, not leave Lucerne, uh, probably. Um, or you know, be be tougher. I was just too, you know. It's hard saying about, but my mother always says you're just too nice. Just I just I just took too much. I just took too much sort of um, bull from the from Bob Paisley. Really, I should have been. I should have sort of. Um, I should have tried to play a, a different 
a different hand but you you are what you are you you can't you can't be something that you that you're not you, and you can't betray and I'm not, I'm not I don't betray to be a tough negotiator in in, in terms of, and it's difficult when you go into a room and you're talking to the likes of Bill Shankly or Bob Paisley to actually get over your 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 real sentiment you kind of pulled along and I, and I think I, I can't I think I allowed Bob Paisley to just pull me along a little bit too, a little bit too much. But having said that, um, you know, as I say you, you, you ride with it. It, it. it was good. It was great fun. Great memories. I've got great friends from it. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud of some of the things I've done for Liverpool, which are nice, you know, have, have been remembered. But but maybe may, maybe in, in a, in a you know, I, I sometimes regret leaving Lucerne when I did. I should have, I just should have, should have just hung on a little bit longer. My life would have been a little bit, a little bit more different, I think. Well, David, uh, we're at the end of our chat uh, and this look back at all these old uh, Shoot Magazine interviews. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and speaking to you today. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed reminiscing with us. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, always, uh, always good. I've got something like this uh, again next week. So um, it's, uh, it, 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 it's nice that people, as I say, re- remember some part that, that you that you contributed to. Yeah. Well, it goes without saying, um, stay safe and look after yourself. Uh, yeah. And if our listeners want to want to interact with you, they can find you on Twitter at dfairclough12, can't they? Yeah, they can. Yeah. And if they already, you know, there's a greater story. My, uh, I, I did an autobiography a couple of years ago, which uh, sort of goes into some of the things we've spoken about today in a bit more better more greater detail so um you know th- that that might be interesting for for one or two who, who, who have enjoyed today fantastic we'll point people towards that on our twitter feed and where they can get hold of that well thanks again david Cheers, Mark. thanks for listening to what happened to you you can find us across all the main podcast platforms so please don't forget to subscribe For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.